We are indeed looking today in the Gospel of John. And if you've looked ahead in your bulletin, you see that we are starting today with John chapter 14. Some of you have just recently found us and have started attending or have joined the church recently, and you may be wondering, why in the world would we be starting in John chapter 14? Well, we began in John and uh, a while ago, and <clears throat> the pandemic forced us uh, outside, and we decided to rearrange our service and uh, step out of John for a while. And so uh, the last time we looked at John, we looked at uh, chapter 14 uh, all the way to verse 6, and that was in October of 2020. And so it's been almost a year since that day. Uh, but uh, I was reminded this week as I uh, ventured back in this that, that John Calvin actually left Geneva, was gone for three years, and when he returned uh, his first Sunday back, he picked up on the verse that he left off with three years earlier. So I'm in good company. <clears throat> now, just to summarize briefly, the Gospel of John uh, can be divided, and most scholars do divide it this way. Chapters uh, 1 through 12 uh, are called and known as the Book of Signs. That's where Jesus uh, performs seven what are called signs in the Gospel of John. And then chapters 13 through 20 are called the Book of the Passion, or some scholars prefer to call it the Book of Glory. Uh, so the Gospel of John can be pretty clearly divided into two equal books, if you will. And then uh, there is a prologue, uh, which is in chapter 1. That's chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And there is an epilogue, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. So you can kind of think of the Gospel of John in those four segments. And then, uh, actually, the first sermon that we ever preached in the Gospel of John dealt with John's purpose statement. He actually, at the, near the end of the Gospel, gives us the purpose for why he wrote any of this in the first place. Why did he select the things that he selected to highlight from the ministry of Jesus? And he says in the purpose statement, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. There were many things he left out. <clears throat> but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That was John's purpose for this gospel. Now as we reach chapter 14, what we see is that Jesus and his disciples, his apostles, have gone into this what's called an upper room. They've gone in there to celebrate the Passover feast, what we now uh, kind of popularly call the Last Supper. And this section, beginning here uh, really at chapter 14 and then going through chapter 17, uh, is called the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus began here in, in uh, before 13 and chapter or before 14 and chapter 13 he began by washing his apostles feet and then he told them 
that one of them was going to betray him. He also notified them when Peter uh, kind of brazenly stood up and said, Lord, I would never betray you. I will stick with you through thick and thin. Jesus turned to Peter, who was kind of the leader of these guys, and said, in fact, Peter, uh, before the rooster crows this morning, you will deny that you even know me three times. And so it's no wonder that when chapter 14 opens, uh, we find these men who came here to celebrate the Passover with Jesus troubled in heart. These men are down. They've heard that horrific things are about to happen. They are now mere hours away from the betrayal and the trial and the crucifixion of their Lord. And yet, it is Jesus, interestingly, who at this time comforts his disciples. They don't comfort him, he comforts them. And so we're going to look here, uh, and I'm going to start with chapter 14, verse 1. I'll go through verse 14, but we're going to be really looking at verse 7. John chapter 14, hear the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. I'm going to stop there, because that's actually how far I get in the sermon. So let's look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, This one verse took me hours of study. This one verse is a notoriously difficult verse. And the reason is, is because we have many, many copies of the New Testament. Many Greek copies, Latin copies, other copies, and that's how we determine what in fact was actually said 
in the original manuscript. We compare many, many copies, we compare them to each other, and by doing that, we can see what was said and what was written by John or by any of the New Testament authors. However, every once in a while, there is a verse where when we compare all the copies together, it's not quite clear what exactly was said. Uh, Now, it's not that big of a deal in the sense that uh, one copy says something heretical and the other one doesn't. Uh, Both things that are in equal amounts could have very easily been said by Jesus at this time. And in fact, great biblical scholars are evenly divided on what it is that Jesus says here in this verse. Here's the difference. And in fact, you know, if you've got your ESV, that's what we're using today, uh, you know what it says. But you might, you might have brought a, a different translation with you today, and, and it may say something a little bit different. For instance, Jesus could have said here to his apostles, if or since you know me, you know you will know my Father also. Since you know me, you will know my Father also. Or he could have said what we have today in this translation that we're using. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Now, in the first instance, Jesus would have been saying something that is assuming and explaining that the apostles do know him and the Father. You see, in this instance, the one that we're using, looking at today, He's, in one sense, challenging them, possibly even, you could use the word, rebuking them for their lack of knowledge. Now, the ESV translators, what we're using today, took the second option. If you had, what Jesus is saying here, if you had really known me, and you don't, then you would have really known my Father, and you don't. However, from now on, you do really know him. And by the way, you have already seen him. That's what is being said here. Now, Jesus very well could have said that first statement. I mean, here's the difficulty, right? Jesus very well could have said, look, there are many people out here who don't know me. But you do. You've been my closest companions, you've walked with me for three years, and you know me. And because you know me the way that no one else does, you will know my Father also. That's very easily could have been said by Jesus. Uh, You need only look at a verse like Matthew 16, where Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? And the apostles are giving all kinds of different answers, and then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I mean, so on the one hand, the apostles did know Jesus better than anyone else. 
And that's why he could have said that. That being said, I actually favor the second view, what we have in our text today, the ESV translation. I favor the the second view that, that Jesus is really saying they don't know him like they think they might. Why? Well, for one thing, Jesus has already said this same kind of thing. The exact wording has already been said by him. Jesus uh, is talking here to the Pharisees, and he says to them, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. says that exact same phrase. And the statement here that Jesus makes to the Pharisees, I think it has to mean, if you really knew me. Because the Pharisees knew a lot about him. The Pharisees knew uh, where he came from. They knew he was from Nazareth. They, they knew his mother and his father. They knew who they were. Uh, they knew what Jesus said. They knew what Jesus did. They followed him around and hounded him like crazy. They watched everything, watched him like a hawk. They examined everything that he said and did, and they examined him with a fine-tooth comb. They kept a very close eye on him, and in one sense, they knew all about Jesus. But did they really know him? Well, no. Because what did they conclude about Jesus? After knowing all that they knew, they concluded that he was a charlatan. They concluded that Jesus was a scam, that, that he was a betrayer, that he was in league with Satan, that Jesus was deceiving people, that Jesus was a great sinner, and that Jesus was a breaker of God's law. The Pharisees, in other words, couldn't have been more wrong about their conclusions of what they knew. And that's why Jesus could look, right, look them in the eye and say, you don't really know me. So because you don't really know me, you don't know my father either. Well, that's the Pharisees. What about the disciples, though? I mean, they certainly weren't the Pharisees. Well, no, they weren't. They were not the Pharisees. But what do we find when we read the Gospels? If we read all four Gospels, they all differ at different points. They all highlight different things. Uh, John's very different than the other three uh, in what he chooses to highlight and for the reasons why. But one of the things that all the gospel accounts kind of agree upon when it comes to the apostles is their collective ignorance and obliviousness to who Jesus is and what he came to do. See, they too knew where he was from. They knew he was from Nazareth. They knew who his parents were. They followed him around. They saw all the things he did. They heard all the things that he said. And in one sense, and I think a very important sense, they knew him far better than the Pharisees did. They did not conclude the same things that the Pharisees did. They didn't conclude that he was a charlatan or a scam or a betrayer in league with Satan. They concluded, in fact, that he was Lord and Christ. But when you look at what they meant by Lord and Christ, I think you could argue that they did not get it. 
They did not know him as the Lord and Christ that he really and truly came to be. There were many things that they misunderstood about him. After all, when he told them clearly what his mission was, he said, I have come to earth to be betrayed, to go to the cross, to die, to rise after three days. They looked at him and said, no, you can't possibly do that. That's not, that's not for you to do. That's for somebody else. See, you can know a lot about Jesus. You can read the Bible, you can go to Sunday school, you can go to church, you can hear a lot of facts about him. And you can, some of you sitting here this morning, may have concluded very wrong things about who he is and what he came to do. Some of you sitting here this morning may have concluded that he's a charlatan, that he's a scam. That following him is worthless. That he doesn't know what he's talking about. That he's not the savior of the world. And therefore, you want anything else than to be here this morning and to hear more phoniness. Some of you, though, may be in a different camp. You may be sitting here hearing all kinds of things about Jesus and thinking, you know what, I do think that Jesus is a very good man. He's a good teacher. He has a lot to teach us. He's a good example. And I'm really glad to be getting some religion in my life today. But you may, in fact, be someone who truly doesn't get what Jesus' mission is all about. Now, I think the immediate context, uh, again, Dave, you have a, Sunday, uh, a small group that goes, uh, looks at the sermons, and you may meet this week and conclude differently. So uh, this is one of these instances where you could pick the other, the other tide. But I think, I think that context shows us uh, that this way of knowing what Jesus is saying is correct. After all, John 14, 1, Jesus begins this discussion by saying, let not your hearts be troubled, uh, he's saying, you believe in God, believe also in me. Now, if, if they already believed in him the way they ought, why does he even need to stress that? Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says to him, to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Philip had been with him for three years and doesn't really know him. And then later on in John chapter 14, verse 20 and 29, when Jesus is talking about after the Holy Spirit comes, what does Jesus say? In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me. I told you now before that takes place so that when it does take place, then you may believe. Even after the resurrection, even after Jesus 
rises from the dead three days later after he tells his apostles that's exactly what's going to happen. When the women come and report that that's what happened, Luke said that these guys, these apostles, heard it and thought it was an idle tale and did not believe the women. Time and time again, we see in the New Testament that the disciples show their ignorance of who Jesus is and what he's really come to do. And I believe that Jesus is right here acknowledging that fact. He is saying to them, if you had really known me and you don't, then you would have really known my Father, and as of yet, you don't. Yet, he doesn't leave it there. The good news is that you will. See, at this point in history, at this epoch in history, prior to the cross, the apostles and the Pharisees actually have quite a a lot in common. They are both largely ignorant of what Jesus came to do. But the difference is that for the apostles, all of that is about to change. It's interesting that Judas is not here any longer when Jesus says this. Judas has already gone out into the night with Satan having entered him. So Judas didn't hear these words. Verse 7 Look at what Jesus says. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus here is promising that things are about to change dramatically in a few hours. He says, from now on, you do really know the Father. I don't think when he says from now on, he means at this exact second. But what he's saying is that soon, Tonight, before the rooster crows, things will be set in motion that will be earth-shattering, that will change history. Things will happen that will be so life-changing for you that when they happen, when I die on the cross, when I rise again, when I ascend to heaven, and when the Holy Spirit is sent, then you will know what I'm talking about. At that time, the lights will finally be turned on. Notice that he's promising them that something will happen that is huge, but notice also in verse 7, he's also saying something has already happened, something that maybe they didn't know. Maybe they haven't realized. In fact, I think he's saying you haven't realized it yet. He's saying Although one day you will know the Father, understand you have seen him already. Now notice the response by Philip, verse 8. Right after Jesus says, you have seen him, Philip turns around, looks him in the eye and says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Now, I think even in the statement, we see that they don't quite get Jesus yet. Because notice what Philip calls him. He calls him Lord. The Greek word here, Lord, kurios, by the time Paul in his letters is calling Jesus Lord, kurios, Paul means Yahweh, God in the flesh. 
But notice here, Philip calls him Lord and then follows it up with a command. Lord, show us the Father. Peter does the same thing. You ever notice how Peter will call Jesus Lord and then command him around? Peter, from that time on, Jesus began to tell his disciples he's going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be raised from the dead after he's killed. Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus, only moments before, got up and washed his disciples' feet. What did Peter say to him? Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Jesus says, yes, I need to do this. Peter said, you'll never wash my feet, Lord. Christian, how many times, just consider, how many times this past week or uh, even today have you in your heart and mind said, Lord, no. Lord, no. Don't you see the contradiction there? (laughs) That on the one hand, we proclaim Jesus as our Lord and Master, and we, on this side of the cross, understand him to be God. And yet, how many times do we still, in our sin, say, no, Lord, I think I'll choose to be Lord right now. Well, if the command, Lord, show us the Father, is maybe insulting to Jesus, I think the statement, and it will be enough for us, is heartbreaking. Because that statement, it will be enough for us, can be translated, and then we will be content. See, understand, uh, Philip is hurting. I understand that. I think we can all understand what he's going through in one sense, just by reading this. He is, like the rest of them, carrying a troubled heart at that moment. But he looks Jesus in the eye, his Lord and his Master who he's been with for three years, and he essentially looks at him and says, Jesus, you haven't done enough for us yet. In this moment of despair, Philip looks Jesus in the eye and says, Jesus, just for once can you show us the Father, and then we'll be content. Then we will be comforted. Just show us the Father, Lord. That's all I'm asking. I can picture the sadness in Jesus' words. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Of all the disciples, Philip was one of the first few. If you go back to our early sermons in John, you'll you'll see that that Philip was one of the first few that, that traveled with Jesus early on before the rest of them came on board. He He saw Jesus' first miracle. He saw Jesus turn the water into wine. He's been there the whole time, and yet he's saying, show us the Father. And Jesus looks at Philip and says, Philip, don't you understand? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What is Jesus saying here? 
Is Jesus saying to Philip, the Father and I are the same person? Christians all the time, or people throughout church history, have made that mistake. In fact, it was such a bad mistake that the church had to put it down as a heresy called modalism, where the the church believed that there was one God in one person, and that that one person played three roles. Is that what Jesus is saying here? No, it's not. As we know from our confession that we read earlier, God the Father and God the Son are not the same person, but they are the same God. Jesus said something like this earlier in John chapter 5. Jesus looked at a group of people and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And the Jews understood what Jesus meant by this. It's interesting for those of us who say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. The Jews understood clearly. It says that's why the Jews were seeking more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They knew what Jesus meant by that. Jesus then goes on and says, Uh, to, to Philip and to the rest, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. See, what Jesus is saying here is What the Son sees the Father do, that the Son does. What the Son hears from the Father, what the Father gives the Son to say, that the Son speaks. And nothing else. What the Son sees the Father do, that's what He does. He does nothing but what the Father does. What the Father says to Him, that He says. Nothing else. This doctrine is known as co-inherence. Co-inherence. C-O-I-N-H-E-R-E-N-C-E. New Testament scholar Vern Poitras, he puts it this way. The co-inherence of the persons means that each person of the Trinity is completely present to the others. Each has complete knowledge of the others. Each acts with the others in the works of God and creation, redemption, and consummation. So though each person is distinct from the other two persons, each person is never in isolation from the other two persons. The persons are not separable. And another New Testament scholar puts it this way, the incarnate Son, Jesus, is enacting his Father's works. These works are therefore divine deeds done humanly, and they manifest that Jesus is the Father's Son. This is why they should be believed, even if one does not believe Jesus' words, because these saving deeds could only be done by someone who is divine. So Jesus looks at Philip and the rest, and he says, how can you say, show us the Father? 
Don't you understand, by my words and by my deeds for the past three years, I have been perfectly revealing the Father to you every day that you have been with me. You see, by the way, as a side note, that is the reason why Jesus is the only way to God. It's not because Christianity is not being inclusive or whatever, not mean. It's because as God, Jesus is the only one who can be the way to God. There's no one else who has ever walked this earth who is God in the flesh. But you see, Jesus is the exact, perfect image of the Father. And when we see him, we see the Father in him. Jesus is God perfectly revealed to the world. See, in Jesus, brothers and sisters, we don't have to wonder anymore what God is like. Ever. Jesus points to his words. He says, don't you understand? The words that I speak are the words of God. When, when I said, peace be still, God was speaking. When I said before Abraham was, I am, God was speaking. When I said, fear not, God was speaking. And when I said, your sins are forgiven, God was speaking. Don't you understand that, that when I worked, when I did things, when I did these things, God did them. When, when I turned water into wine, God was working. When I cleansed the temple, God was working. When I fed the 5,000, God was working. And when I touched the leper, God was working. Don't you see? Don't you see, my disciples, oh, you of little faith, that, that when I sat with you, when I laughed with you, when I cried with you, when I prayed with you, when I taught you, and when I called you to be my own, God did all of those things for you. And in a few hours from now, when I go to the cross for you, it is God who is paying the very debt that you owe him. Friend, that is the very point that John makes at the very beginning of his gospel. In John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and this Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John opens his gospel with this very thing. And it's interesting that John contrasts 
right here at the beginning of his gospel, Jesus with Moses. Why does he bring Moses in here? What an interesting thing. He's talking about the Word and the eternal Word taking on flesh, and somehow he picks out of everyone in the Old Testament Moses to be in this prologue. See, Moses had a difficult life. He was born uh, under oppression. His mother had to hide him away so that he wouldn't be killed. He was uh, a refugee on the run. He was later chosen by God to be the one guy in the world to confront the most powerful man in the world and risk his life. He then had to deal with the terror of the Egyptian army bearing down on him. He then, after God rescued him, had to deal for years with grumbling Israelites, blaming him for all kinds of things. You can imagine how troubled in spirit Moses was half the time, perhaps his entire life. And then one day, when Moses was alone with the invisible God, conversing with him, he asked God for one thing, to give him contentment in his hard life. He said, please God, show me your glory. In essence, what Moses was saying is, please God, I want to see you face to face, unveiled. How did God respond to Moses? He said, Moses, that is impossible. Don't you see, Moses, you're only a man. You cannot see my face. Moses, no one can see me and live. If I unveiled myself fully in your fallen state, you would surely die. So God makes a deal with Moses. He said, Moses, there is a rock over there. I will hide you in the cleft of that rock. That when my glory passes, you will be safe. Moses never got to see God, but he got to hear who God was. When God hid him in the cleft of the rock, and he went by, he revealed who he was. The Lord descended in the cloud. He stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no means clear the guilty. You realize this is the only time in all of Scripture that Yahweh, God's name, is doubled like this. When he speaks to Moses and he says, the Lord, the Lord, this is it. He's saying, do you want to know who I am? Who I am at the core being of me, I will tell you who I am. Moses, I am merciful I am gracious, I am slow to anger, I am abounding in steadfast love, 
I'm abounding in faithfulness. I keep steadfast love for thousands. I forgive iniquity. I forgive transgression and I forgive sin. But Moses, you have to understand, I will by no means clear the guilty. I will not turn a blind eye to sin, but I will punish every sin ever committed. That day, God revealed to Moses as he was hid in the cleft of the rock that he is at the same time both just and merciful. One New Testament scholar says this, what Moses had heard but had not been allowed to see, Jesus has made visible for all the world to see. See, I don't want us to miss, Christian, the sheer magnitude of what Jesus is telling his apostles that day. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. Let me see the Father in his unveiled glory, and then I'll be content. And Jesus could have looked at Philip, and he could have said, see the Father? What's wrong with you, Philip? Haven't you ever read your Old Testament? Don't you know that Moses asked for the same thing? You want to die? Instead, Jesus said the most wonderful words the world has ever heard. Don't you see, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But Jesus says something else that's perhaps even more important. He says, guys, you don't really know my Father yet, but you are about to. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he became the rock of ages, cleft for you and me. On the cross, the Father and the Son together demonstrated perfectly God's justice and his mercy. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And before Jesus left for the cross, he said, Father, the hour has come to glorify yourself. You see, because, Christian, we are hid in the rock of ages, one day, you and I will be where Moses wanted to be. We will be in the immediate presence of God and with unveiled faces in glory finally see our God face to face. John tells us, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And John had this vision at the end of his life, suffering in exile, alone on the island of Patmos. John says, I had this vision. The angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. 
And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face. Brothers and sisters, that's what we have to look forward to this morning. Whatever you're dealing with, we just spent an hour uh, in Sunday school this morning in the adult class praying for all kinds of things, all kinds of things that are weighing us down and on our hearts and on our minds, but our future is secure because of what Jesus did on the cross. I'll close uh, with this. Hymn writer Fanny Crosby, she was blind. And she wrote these words, When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, the bright and glorious morning I shall see. I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side and His smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gates of the city in a robe of spotless white, he will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages, I shall mingle with delight, but I long to see my Savior most of all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this amazing, amazing reminder that the Lord Jesus perfectly revealed you to the world. Father, thank you for the cross where your love and mercy and justice met. And we pray that you would impress that upon us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.